Welcome to WMTMW, the podcast where we ask members of the Bucknell University community what matters to you and why. My name is Kurt Nelson, and my producers are Jack Rose and Spandin Marasini. In the fall of 2019, Mackenzie Gross directed a version of 12 Angry Men inside state correctional institution, Cole Township in Pennsylvania. Half of her actors were Bucknell students and half of her actors were inmates at SCI Cole Township. She's here to talk with us today about what she learned in that experience, about empathy, about growth, about learning, and about building those kind of brave communities where folks can really share across lines of difference, and in this case, really significant differences. Thanks for being with us. So we'd love for you to start just by answering the question. What matters to you and why? Yeah, jump, jump right in. Absolutely. Uh, what matters to me is giving back to the community and uplifting voices that particularly have been suppressed, as well as educating and re-educating individuals who perhaps haven't known better or perhaps who have made the choice to remain ignorant, but who now have seen the light or who are coming to terms with their own privilege and their own space in this world and how to be a better person, not just for themselves or their immediate community, but for the greater community at large. And I think the the privilege that I've had to be in a position to uplift others and to better the community around me has been really, really remarkable. And that drives me greatly. So share with us a little, like some of the narrative side of that, like where where, where did that come or where, where have you learned that or where have you had a chance to experience that in, in a particular way? So last fall, I directed a production of 12 Angry Men at SCI Cole Township Prison. And the cast was comprised of inmates as well as Bucknell students who were part of a sociology class. Uh, Professor Carl Malofsky uh, allowed me to take over the class and direct and produce this production, which was an incredible opportunity that I'm very, very thankful for that he he allowed me to do this. Um, so stepping into the role of director and advocate for the arts, it's become what we've called artivism, which was using art as activism to display narratives that are not commonly allowed to be seen and really highlighting conversations about race, class, privilege in a room of people who are aged 18 to 65 who are who come from so many different places and who bring such wonderful and unique perspectives to the conversation so to be able to learn from each other while we go through the rehearsal process that resulted in two performances in November of last year um, one for the inside community where other inmates were able to see their peers on stage um, and be able to experience art for maybe the first time in a very long time, or the first time ever. And then the other uh, community, which was the the greater Bucknell community. So professors and deans, President Brofman came, as well as families of several of the cast members. So it was wonderful to be able to meet the parents who drove from all over to see their sons, who they haven't been able to see in this you see in this context before. Yeah, I still don't know wh why I got invited to that thing, but it was uh, it was really one of the most the most special things that, um, as I've told you before, one of the most special things that I've seen at uh, at Bucknell for sure. Um, 
a really, really exciting and really meaningful project. And that was just, just so that no one gets worried. This was November of 2019. Is that right? Yes. 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 It was pre all pre pre all this stuff uh, that we've been going through for the last the last year, right? Yeah. Um. So you were at that point uh, junior. Is that correct? Yes. So we really got it in in the nick of time. <laughs> so help us understand like the road to to like doing that sort of thing as a junior at Bucknell. Absolutely. And thank you again so much for coming. <laughs> really, I, I appreciated your presence there greatly. Um, so the road to, to directing and then producing ultimately in this wonderful culmination of an audience with a stage and costumes and a background and a set um, started because I was a student in Professor Malofsky's Inside Out class at the spring of my sophomore year. And as part of that class, you go into SCI Coal Township Prison every two weeks and you have conversations about the sociology texts as a class with the inside students who are the prisoners and the outside students who are the Bucknell students. And it brought to me a wonderful perspective of not only the freedoms that I've taken for granted in my life, but also the the absolute the absolute benefit to investing in incarcerated communities. It's not only beneficial to the men in the room, but it's beneficial to the entire prison and the prison system, as well as when individuals could potentially be released. There are these conversations that have been had and these experiences that have been had that can only benefit the greater community at large. So I really started to see, wow, this is a community worth investing in and they deserve to be heard. And so far, they've been silenced. And so I spoke to Professor Malofsky about his class that was in the fall of 2019. And I said, I want to direct a production of 12 Angry Men. I think that there is complete beauty to be had in not only the experience of being part of a project where other people are relying on you and you really are an equal part of the team, but also this specific text is so rich with discussions about race and prejudice and what does it mean to have 12 white men discussing the life or death of a man, of a boy of color, when our cast is women and men of color having those same conversations? What does it mean to say the words not meant to be said by you? And how does that reflect in our society today? And I just got very excited about this idea and I am still astounded, like just shocked that uh, he allowed me to take over his class and said, you're the professor, write the syllabus, it's yours. And that complete freedom really allowed me to to create a space that really captured exactly what I wanted it to capture, which was a space of safety where people can discuss things that they have not been able to discuss with other people. Because in prison, as I've learned, there's a very, it's very guarded. Um, to express your feelings is to express weakness. And here we come as these outside students who aren't going to tell anyone else what they're saying, who aren't going to think less of them for expressing their feelings about being a father or a husband or their experiences in prison. No one, none of us are going to 
think less of them for that. We will only offer empathy and support. So we really became a safe space for the men as they became a safe space for us where they offer such wonderfully unique perspectives about other things. And it really helped contextualize a lot of things for all of us. And I remain friends with all of the men today, which I'm incredibly thankful for. And we email weekly and it's just, I'm able to help them in their processes as they continue to move forward. Several of the men in the class were sentenced to life sentences. And the only way to sort of combat that is a commutation. In 2020, only one commutation in the state of Pennsylvania was granted. So it's very, very difficult to achieve one. But I'm working with two of the men to really advocate that they deserve another chance and they have grown from who they were 15, 20 years ago. It's just not them anymore. And I think productions like this, where we invest in incarcerated communities, really highlight that there's so much humanity that's just not allowed to be seen. It's just under the surface. Because when you're treated like a number or you're reduced to a loss of identity, a loss of being a father, a loss of being a husband, a loss of being a free man, no one's giving you a chance. So being able to go into these communities with a with a fresh set of eyes and an open mind without pre any prejudgments was, I think, really helpful to the process. So I explained this to Professor Malofsky, and he let me have a go of it. And Thomas McGinley, who's the superintendent of Cole Township, was, in, was instrumental in the process. If he had said no, there wouldn't have been any further conversation. But he recognized the value in what this could offer, not only to the men in the classroom, but what it could represent to the greater community at large of there are people listening to you. So I think he really stands out as an incredible role model um, for what it means to believe in other people and what it means to support those who have been historically undermined. Lovely. Appreciate all of that. What's what's something that you think you and your classmates, your Bucknell classmates, uh, sort of took away from that? Because it strikes me that that's another, another point of just such incredible value and such incredible learning that happened during the course of this experience. What's something that surprised you or something you took away from the process uh, as, a, as a learner yourself or as you, what you saw in your, uh, your fellow Bucknell students? I think everyone took away not only a great sense of accomplishment at having done something that has never been done before, um, but also at putting themselves in vulnerable positions. 12 Angry Men is a very intense show, and I don't always think that people remember that. There is such intense and violent racism that some characters specifically have to speak. There's this three and a half page monologue that one of the jurors has to say that is just, I mean, it brought her to tears the first time she read it and we had to stop the scene. And what struck me most in that moment was not that she was overcome by emotion, was that the men in the room, the black men in the room to this white woman who was just horrified at at the violence of this language, everyone went to her and said, this is not you, these are not your words. You cannot take the responsibility and the burden of this language because when you step into character, you're stepping into a body that's not yours and you cannot take the the burden of that with you because that's just unsafe practice. And I had, I had explained that at the beginning, but it struck me in that moment that 
especially for people who aren't in the theater community, as most of the cast wasn't. This was their first performance. This was their first rehearsal process. The first time reading a script and saying it out loud and really knowing what that means and the weight that those words carry. Um, I think it struck everyone in the room in that moment just how powerful words are. And I'm so appreciative to the men for just stepping up to say, this isn't you, because I think that's what everyone in the room needed to hear, even if they didn't know they needed to hear it. It was sort of a permission to say, it's okay, because you are not this person. Yeah, I mean, I remember that that moment in the show, and I remember the cast, the cast talk afterward and how impactful it was, right, to sort of see, um, yeah, how much care and compassion and uh, and empathy there was, kind of ro- moving in, in all 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 sorts of directions uh, in that moment that moment in time between, you know, inmates and students and uh, across racial lines and uh, yeah, it's a special a special thing. Maybe not unique, but uh, but really special. It is special, and I think to broaden that point, that empathy and that care and that compassion was maintained throughout the entire process. So I think it opened everyone's eyes that just because a person doesn't look like you or have the same background as you or have the same experience as you, there is something to be not only learned from everyone, but valued and deeply appreciated about everyone. And everyone brought that compassion and kindness to the table. And I think it was important to see for everybody that there's trust to be had in in people who you haven't even met before like the friendships and the bond that formed so quickly. Because when you're in a rehearsal process, as anyone in the arts can tell you, when you're in a rehearsal process, you are thrown into these very fast, very intense connections. And that forms such an intense friendship so quickly because you do need to trust the people around you, not only to learn their lines, but to be there for you as emotional support throughout this very, very, um, strenuous process at times when it's a long show there's a lot of lines and there are specific movements that everyone has that are dependent on a word so if an actor misses that word it sets off this chain of events so the trust that everyone had to have in each other to not only be prompt with it but to then have the discussions after of what does this mean how is this making me feel What does it mean that I'm a white woman saying these things? What does it mean that I'm a black man saying these things? Those are just incredibly important conversations. And the debriefs, I think, is where a lot of the magic happened in the rehearsal process. Because it was more than just putting on a play. If I wanted to just put on a play, you could have done that anywhere. It It was making meaningful connections and having really, really enlightening conversations about lived experiences that some of us in that room will never know and have never had and will never experience. So to be able to learn from each other and to be able to empathize and offer a hand when someone was in need, I think is something everyone has taken away from that process and learning how to trust again for some of us. Some of the cast hadn't had a safe space to speak in a very long time to being able to come in as that person and as those people 
it was, I mean, was just incredible. Yeah. And I think to be able to build that sense of connection, that sense of safety and trust and empathy, not, and by just kind of going straight into the most significant issues, right? I mean, it's a, a, a te- as you said, a text that deals you know, directly with trials, not unlike some of the trials that these men had uh, had experienced, right? Or or dealing with racism, not unlike sort of folks' experience, uh, you know, on, on the daily. And uh, and so it's uh, yeah, yeah, significant stuff. Mm-hmm. Something also interesting to note is that none of the men in the room had a jury trial. Mm, interesting, I didn't so, know that. Yeah. So, yeah, and so what does that mean that these men who were pressured for one way or another by the prosecutor to take the deal or insert threat here. You'll never see your kids again. You'll never be a free man again. What does it mean that you are now a part in this production, part of this system of justice that was never granted to you? Right. Wow. So there's that conversation to be had as well. And I think that that was almost therapeutic for some of the men to talk Mm. about how they felt the color of their skin really influenced the way that the justice system perceived them. And I think that they're entirely right. I think the system is deeply, deeply flawed and prejudiced against Black men specifically in the state of Pennsylvania. is not the exception, it's the rule. Right. So as, as wonderful as this individual prison was in, in allowing us to create art, I think it's important to not lose sight of the bigger picture of there are deep, flawed, intergrained racial prejudices in our society? And what does that mean for the men who have been harmed by them? hundred percent. And uh, and to invite both the audience, but I think especially your classmates and cast members into really deeply thinking about that um, with such empathetic bonds will, you know, I, I earnestly mm-hmm. hope have significant impacts on how they think, talk, advocate, you know, work around these issues, because we, we really do, you know, we put put prisons uh, away away from polite society and uh, and just sort of let it be, right? Uh, but you really invited people into relationships that uh, that make that a problem, right? Um, and that's, uh, it's a step, it's an important step. Thank you. And I absolutely agree. I think that steps like these are how we move forward and having the hard conversations is how we can see sustainable change in the future. Right, fine find some purchase to think think about what's next. Mm-hmm. So obviously a lot has happened since you put on this production, right? We went we went into quarantine a couple of months, a few months later and uh, and uh, have lived through a summer with this renewed kind of uh, energy and interest and uh, in racial justice, but also these uh, sort of very public tragedies, um, murders, right? Um, in the midst of things. So what, if anything, has changed for you over the last year as you think about what, what matters to you and why and how, how you might be sort of making that, making that work in your life? I'm currently writing my honors thesis about this experience and not just the experience of having instigated this and been in the room, but what does it mean for the greater community? So it's a comparative humanities umbrella with an Africana studies focus looking at sociology, theater, and legal studies and talking about Blackness not only in the legal prosecution system, but as well as Blackness in theater, because there's racism everywhere you look and there's prejudice against Black-bodied individuals everywhere. So what does our case study 
production of 12 Angry Men mean? And is it reflective of the greater community? And how did we use our platform and our voices to properly advocate for investing in incarcerated communities? Because it's with these with these with programs and with classes and with rehabilitation opportunities that's where we can see a better society but that's the aftermath it needs to start with the prosecution and i i'm a person who wants to go into law i am going to law school in the fall and i want to be a prosecutor but i want to be a reform prosecutor where instead of differentiating sentences based on race which you see evidenced in every prison in Pennsylvania and in the country at large, there are Black men serving life sentences for crimes that white men got maybe four years for. And to meet those individuals and say, this is just, it's not anything you did, it's a fault of the system, but it is so much unlearning that has to happen from that. And there's so much accountability that needs to be had that people are not willing to take because people are afraid of being, quote, racist or, quote, the bad guy. So rather than say something and own up to their part in the system, they pretend it doesn't happen. They say those figures aren't real. That doesn't make sense. The police aren't racist. But I think what this summer very timely shows through the Black Lives Matter movement is it's not only real, but it is prevalent and it is banging on our doorsteps and it's in our homes. And the people trying to say this isn't real who've been able to excuse it their entire lives because they don't want to say, oh, my mother is racist. Oh, my grandfather is racist. My neighbor. You need to be able to say, I have had racist tendencies or I have acted with racism in my heart. And how do I re-educate myself to move forward? So I think that we got a jumpstart on things by having those conversations in the fall of 2019. And then with everything moving forward, everything has been a been building up to this avalanche where what's going to happen now in our society? How is the government going to address these deep, deep injustices? And how is the prosecution going to move forward? I want to be a reform prosecutor, but the way things stand, it's only specific cities who are starting to really build up to that. And really able to say, what is colorblind justice? Because we've never had that. We've never had a system in which race did not play a role in sentencing, did not play a role in the way laws are written, has not played a role in crime. They're so intertwined that to be black-bodied is to be a criminal. To unlearn that means a complete unraveling of everything that we know. And that is what needs to happen for the next step. It's not extreme to say this system is actively hurting the black community. Right. I mean, racism is deadly, right? It's not, it's not, uh, this isn't, this isn't an issue of uh, the things that your, your racist uncle says at the picnic, right? I mean, it is an issue of that, but it's an issue Mm -hmm. of uh, life expectancy, an issue of life and death, an issue of of these things. And uh, yeah, let's hope, let's hope that this summer was uh, a jumpstart for those who are ready, ready to be jumpstarted and that we can figure out how to do the interpersonal work and the systemic work to uh, keep, keep that, that movement moving forward so that we can uh, get, get to that space. Um, will you say a word about what you mean by colorblind justice? Cause I know the, the phrase colorblind will, uh, will send, send people spinning in multiple directions, right? Say, say a little bit about your hopes, your hopes for that. 
the way that I view colorblind, colorblind casting and colorblind justice is the, the skin color of a person does not determine the outcome of their person. It is not walking into a room in front of a judge walking into a courtroom and the jury looking at you differently because they they equate blackness to a danger to society, which is the narrative that prosecutors have pushed for decades and decades. The first black man didn't serve on a jury in the United States until the 1930s. That's within the past 100 years. That's not as long ago as we think it is, especially when it comes to who is determining the sentences of other individuals? Who? What does it really mean by a jury of your peers if you are not represented in those peers? And even now there's jury exclusion processes where it's hard for black people to serve on juries because they don't, because prosecutors don't want them to. It's all tied together. There's this deep, deep connection between black bodies being this opposing force to criminal prosecution. So walking into a courtroom and seeing a defendant as a defendant and not an already established criminal or a person who's going to hurt your family or a person who, who is in some way a threat to your safety. Because there's this, there's this connection for some reason because of the deeply harmful stereotypes that have been pushed forward is that to be a black man really is to be a danger to society. So my hope for the future and my hope for colorblind justice is really just a person is seen for what they may or may not have done and nothing more and nothing less than that. So, so not, I mean, you obviously have, have a, a passion and a sustained passion for this work and not only that, but these relationships with, with folks on the inside who are, you know, struggling and suffering under, under the system. So how, how is it that you, um, you think about sustaining your work in this, not burning out, not uh, not feeling overwhelmed, not feeling like you know it's too big uh, for for one person to take on. How do you how do you kind of find your find your place in that big network of of uh, interconnected and complicated and uh, and vast and historic sort of problems that exist? Definitely, um, I think that a great motivator for me is the men who I've worked with because they are the reason that I want to do what I want to do. I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer, but my purpose was less defined. I want to represent men who have been harmed by the way the system works currently. I want to prevent more, I want to prevent senseless acts of violence and of people being taken away from their homes for no actual equal reason. I think a way to sustain oneself is to think of self-care in the way that the Black Panthers thought of self-care. Self-care has been so commercialized and it's, it's such a capitalist notion currently. But what it used to mean is you need to take care of your own home before you can step into the community and uplift others. You got to take care of yourself so that you can take care of other people. And I think by keeping my own home clean, by keeping a fresh mentality, by doing the work 
and knowing that that I'm surrounding myself with people who who feel the same way, who are fighting to see a better world. I think that's deeply sustaining. I think that's exactly right. You can't pour from an empty pitcher, right? We have to figure out how to keep replenishing ourselves and in this work. And I think uh, finding finding community amongst those who um, you know are suffering the ill effects of these systems and practices, and finding community amongst those uh, who are trying trying to you know find find a little corner where they can make a difference, right? I think that's both, both of those are, are hugely important and, uh, and that it's relationships that, that keep us in it, right? Um, in the midst of stuff. And then it's the daily practices of, uh, yeah, non-commercialized care, right? Um, mm-hmm. Care that has nothing to do with what brand of yoga pant you might be wearing at a, at a given yes. time, right? Or what, uh, um, all, all of that sort of stuff, I think, uh, I think really matters, matters a lot for sure. So thanks. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. Absolutely. Any advice for folks who are, you know, looking to get started or who have found themselves uh, kind of awoken by this, this, uh, this year's, uh, you know, kind of twin, twin pandemics of, uh, of racist violence and uh, of, of COVID who are, who are hoping to find a way, a way through what, what would you uh, recommend for people who can't, you know, go, go do these, uh, you know, long, long-term uh, intimate, meaningful projects with inmates on the inside? Yeah, I would say for white individuals specifically, it's very important to remember that this isn't about you. And I don't say that with with any malintent. I say this as a white woman, um, but it is important for to not center ourselves at this movement and to say, oh, this is, you know, this is justice. This is what it looks like. It's uplifting black voices and giving them a space and a platform because in the society we live, Black folks are not given that platform as readily as white individuals are. So it's when being called on in a meeting, when you see another person, another, you know, a Black individual with their hand up and saying, oh, they they were here first. It's allowing space and giving space. And that means giving up your own space because equality isn't about silencing white people. It's about giving equal volume. It's about amplifying Black voices. So how can you do that in your daily life? And then how can you do it at a greater scale? How can you not just be not a racist person, but how do you make it hard for other people to be actively racist in America? Being racist should be a painful and lonely experience. And if you are not calling out other people for their comments or the jokes that they're waiting for a laugh at, if you are not actively saying, this is wrong and let me tell you why and let me tell you why you should be ashamed of that behavior, then I think that that's enabling the problem. And sometimes sometimes it can be difficult. Sometimes it's telling your dad, you know, this is, this is a problem. And I, I, you know, I've been very fortunate in having a very, very supportive and, you know, liberal family. Um, who really instilled the values in me of decentering oneself from the narrative. It's not about us. And how can we sustainably advocate for change in companies, in pay raises, in the law? Because masses speak when enough people are saying something loud enough, and not just of one community, because Black people have been fighting for equality 
for a very, very long time. But when white allies, when white people who recognize the error of their ways, the error of this country, step in to amplify those voices and to say, listen to them, they have something important to say. That's when other white people start listening. It's the white people who need to have the conversations with the white people in their community. Because black people have had enough have had enough of explaining it to us. It is not the job of a black person to explain, here's what you can do to help. Here's how you've hurt me. It's putting, that's putting more burden on the individual. And that's not what we need to be doing right now. We need to be educating ourselves, looking up resources ourselves. And something that white folks can do to help is sharing those resources so we don't put the burden on black people to do the same. And I think that in doing those things within your own circle, it spreads because then other people can wake up and say, oh, wow, let me reflect on my behaviors and let me re-educate myself. Let me relearn history the way that it happened and maybe not the way that I was taught. Let me unlearn politics that I was maybe taught from my family. Let me take a step back and say, I am not helping anyone right now. So then how can you help people? And I think in doing those things, there will be a chain reaction and there will be a group loud enough to achieve the change that is necessary. Right. Love it. Thanks for all this. Deeply appreciated uh, your perspective and uh, the, this, uh, I think, fantastically meaningful experience uh, of this class and your relationship with Professor Malofsky and the, the prison and all, all that's come of it. Really, uh, it's really an incredible story, really a meaningful story. And we appreciate your, your sharing, sharing some of it with us today, for sure. Absolutely. And I'm very grateful to Bucknell for allowing me to have the platform to, to do this. And I'm also grateful to every article shared along the way that has allowed me to relearn along the way um, and to unlearn the, this, this racism, subtle and, and obvious, that has just never been questioned before. And what does it mean that it's, like, what does that speak to about privilege? Just of not knowing, you know, just genuine ignorance. So I'm very grateful for for that as well and to have been in a space where it was, you know, a, an opportunity to learn. It really was uh, a really special, a special experience, a special thing. And I'm, I'm glad that it was so meaningful for you that those relationships come and that it's, uh, uh, you know, led you, not, not started you, but led you, continued you down this road of really deep thinking about kind of how we fit into this and how we can try to you know use use the the places opportunities we have to uh, unwind some of the stuff and do some of the work it's uh, it's a big deal for sure such a pleasure and uh, deeply inspiring and deeply appreciated thanks for thanks for all your work and thanks to talking thanks for talking to us about it